1: Hi, folks. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is my seventh podcast as your host. Before we get started with today's interview, I just want to remind you that we have a Facebook page. Feel free to go there and click like, and you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or any other podcast software you may have on your phone or your computer. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave a review, that way more people are likely to find us. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with one of the world's most honored and accomplished authors of science fiction. He's won the Nebula Award five times, the Hugo Award four times, and he's been nominated for both those awards many more times than that. In 1999, he was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, and in 2004, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America gave him their Grand Master Award for Career Achievement. He's also known, been friends with, been mentored by, or collaborated with all the great names in science fiction of the last five or six decades. In case you haven't guessed, today's interview is with Robert Silverberg. Thank you for joining me today on New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy.
0: Glad to be here.
1: Today, the focus of our conversation is on an anthology you edited that was republished by Rock this year. It's called Science Fiction 101, Exploring the Craft of Science Fiction. It came out originally in 1987 as Robert Silverberg's Worlds of Wonder, and it collects some of the stories that help shape you as a writer, and you follow each story in the book with commentaries in which you draw lessons about the way to write science fiction, I wanted to ask you, how did the idea for this book originally come about, if you recall?
0: Well, uh, when I called it Robert Silverberg's Worlds of Wonder, I meant it to be an anthology of the stories that I learned how to write science fiction from, Uh, the the stories that defined me as an aspiring writer. And I meant also to include uh, an essay on each story, explaining to other aspiring writers of a later generation what it was about those stories that made them so good. Uh, so it was a kind of teaching anthology, my, my favorite stories but also what I learned from them. That was why it eventually got retitled Science Fiction 101 uh, because it is a kind of primer of how to write science fiction as well as containing, I think it's 13 really wonderful stories. And I also slapped in a long 60 or 70 page, I think, autobiographical essay explaining how I was once a kid with my nose pressed to the window, hoping I could get into the candy shop and actually be a writer someday, and how I got to be one. So it's, it's an autobiography. It's a set of uh, great stories by other people and a group of critical essays.
1: And how did it come about that it was reprinted this year by Rock?
0: Well, it had been out of print. Books come and go into print. And Mm. uh, the last time around, it was published by a company that is no longer in business. So the rights came back to me, and Rock had become the publisher of my my best-known book, Lord Valentine's Castle. And since they were now my publishers, I thought, let's get this book back into print, too, because uh, aside from my own contributions to it, my essays and my autobiographical stuff, uh, there are 13 wonderful stories that date from 50 and 60 years ago and deserve to be known by today's readers.
1: Well, you know, they are really fun to read and I really enjoyed being introduced to some of these people who I honestly uh, myself had never heard of. Of course, some I had heard of, but um some I hadn't. And uh, I have to say
0: who who, who was new to you in that group.
1: Well, some of the older ones like C.L. Moore and uh, I I I guess I'd heard the name Damon Knight but never read anything by him and uh Alfred Bester. I mean, quite a few of them. Of course, I knew Philip K. Dick and I knew James Blish and Frederick Pohl. But some of the some of the names were were new to me. And what was exciting is that many of the ideas were still still felt very fresh.
0: Yeah, these these stories don't go out of date. There, there's a feeling I know among the young that anything that's more than about three years old is not worth thinking about. But these are really vigorous perceptive stories about a future that still hasn't happened, generally. And, yes, the names you mentioned, uh, they were enormous names to me, but these people have not been around for a long time and have been forgotten, which I think is a shame because they were great writers.
1: Maybe you could help parse out the difference between fantasy and, you know, fantasy as a larger genre and where sci-fi as a subgenre of fantasy, where, where, where it begins, how you differentiate between those two.
0: Well, we're already on the same page. When you say that science fiction, and by the way, I don't much like the word sci-fi, science fiction uh, is a subdivision of fantasy because that's exactly what it is. Uh, fantasy a huge uh, genre concept that includes anything from Alice in Wonderland to Game of Thrones, and science fiction, a rather specialized compartment within it that uh, is concerned primarily, I think, with the impact of technology on life. But that that's too limiting because many of the stories in my book and many that I've written, I don't have anything technological at all about them. They are constrained, though, by an understanding of the realities of the universe, uh, by which I mean that you can't simply bring in Gandalf to wave a wand. You need to work within the understanding we have of the universe, an understanding that changes from generation to generation as uh, we penetrate the mysteries more deeply. So there are rules. One science fiction writer, Gregory Benford, <coughs> Who uh, is himself a professor of physics calls fantasy tennis without a net, which is a little harsh. But there is something to that. You could make up your world to suit yourself. Science fiction has harder boundaries, so that's that's how I would define it as uh, a kind of fantasy with hard boundaries.
1: Do you want to tell me a little bit about what makes these stories in the book still fresh for you? I mean, if you were to say some of the defining qualities, or even maybe one of the specific stories. I don't know if you have a favorite among among these favorites. I know these are all favorites of yours. Is there one that stands out? Uh,
0: I, I, since these are my favorite stories, it's hard for me to pick one that stands out above the others, but I can talk about some of them that have come to mind particularly. Uh, James Blish's uh, Common Time, I, I think one of the great science fiction stories is about an experimental space flight, faster than light, that allows, that forces its protagonists to go through about 6,000 years of mental processes during the course of one flight. And Blish, who was an extremely uh, intellectual writer, examines exactly what it would be like to have that experience. It's, it's a dreamlike experience but with the intellectual rigor of a carefully constructed dream in which every phase is thought out. A story that I I can't get out of my mind even after it's now more than 60 years since I first read it. Alfred Bester's Fondly Fahrenheit is a technical experiment. It's a story in which the several protagonists are intertwined so that it's hard for the reader to tell exactly whose point of view we're living in at the moment but mainly it's about a robot who, under the pressure of temperature extremes, begins to do some very strange things. That's not a dated story. We don't have that kind of robot yet, and we may have the fondly Fahrenheit experience when we do. The Fred Pohl story, Fred, of course, uh, died last year at the age of 93, had a wonderfully long career, and lived right on into our own times. Fred Pohl's story, Dade Million, is only three or four pages long, but in those three or four pages provides a vision of the greatly transformed world of our descendants that probably is not one that is going to be realized. We can't predict the future, but it is a completely thought out and delimited world of unrecognizable people and The way Fred tells the story, uh, he says, this is a story about a boy and a girl, but the boy wasn't a boy and the girl wasn't a girl, and he goes on from there contradicting everything that he has said and then demonstrates why it's contradicted by the reality of the world he's portrayed. It's an amazing stunt. All of the stories in the book are amazing stunts, and they're also wonderfully human pieces of
1: fiction. That's absolutely right. The Fred Pohl story struck me as one that was more, many of them are, are, many of the stories are visionary in a, with a technological focus. And his, although a lot of technology was implied and it's discussed actually at its core, it was about changes in human relationships, how people mated and married because using these far-flung future imagined methods, this couple fell in love and then continued to be with each other, even though they never saw each other again. They used technology, basically, to, to maintain their relationship.
0: And we would probably not recognize them as human beings if we were sitting across the room from them. But yet they are our descendants.
1: Exactly. One thing that did strike me, and I wanted to ask you about this, if you feel that uh, because science fiction is trying to Anticipate or imagine something in the future. It puts the genre and the writing sometimes at risk more so than other genres, of being seeming at least in some material aspects dated. And some of these stories, which have incredible, compelling plots and amazing visions of the future, they're still in some of them. You know, the women are the homemakers and they're cooking, and of course that's not that's just incidental to the plot. And one can enjoy the story, but in our world where social roles have changed, it sort of stands out as something as, oh, look at that. You know, the writer took for granted something, which you can understand why they would take it for granted. The, they were writing in the fifties and and so they weren't exploring how that might change, but but it puts the story a little bit at risk of at least that aspect of it seeming dated. And I just wonder what you thought of that. If that's if that's just a risk inherent in science fiction.
0: It's a risk inherent in any kind of fiction. Uh, social attitudes change, and things take place in stories which uh, we would now, at least today's readers, would now consider politically incorrect. Uh, so what? Uh, when we look back at the the great works of the past, we cannot expect the characters in those stories to behave like 21st century people. They aren't. Uh, In Othello, which is generally considered a great play, the protagonist, the title character, in a fit of jealousy, smothers his wife. Uh, If he were a football player, he'd he'd, he'd be in big trouble now. Uh, He gets into big trouble anyway. In fact, uh, he he takes his own life, when he realizes what he's done, But to say of Othello it's a bad play because there is uh, spousal abuse in it is foolish. It's a great play, it's great poetry, they're great characters, and in fact spousal abuse, as we're discovering from today's newspapers, still exists anyway. Now, Science fiction is written about the future, but it's not written in the future. The writer uh, is locked into his own time, and though he can predict changes to come and try to, to show a society in which those changes have greatly affected human life, as, for example, a writer named John Varley wrote a brilliant novel in which people change sex the way you and I would change shoes. Nevertheless, the the social attitudes of the time when the story is being written normally will control the, the writer to some degree, he cannot focus on transforming everything all at once, unless he's writing Fred Pohl's Day Million, which is an astonishing transformation of everything, including the nature of humanity. And you can bet that in that story, the the woman, if whatever she is, is a woman, is not staying home and washing the dishes while the husband goes to work. Uh, I see the criticism. I've had a very long career now. My first stories were published in 1953, and here I still am in 2014. So I see criticisms of my earlier work in which the critic, rather unfairly, says, well, this portrays outmoded social attitudes. Well, yes, it does, but that's not what the story is about. The story is, is, is about the visionary aspect that isn't outmoded. That's the part that has to be concentrated on. Not expecting every story to be written as though the the attitudes, the social attitudes of 2014 were in existence back there in 1957.
1: Right. I wonder if there's anything to be done for a science fiction writer to to free their mind to the maximum extent possible. Some exercise or being put into a, you know, a suspension tank where, where they can be separated from our imaginative constraints that we don't even realize we're, we're constrained by because we're immersed in our own current culture. I suppose that's just not possible.
0: I don't think it's possible. I think today's younger writers who are immersed in their current culture are writing stories that are, going, that are going to seem quite outmoded 30 years from now. They're making the same mistake. Uh, Well, it isn't a mistake, it's it's, uh, something inherent in the act of writing. To assume that everything is going to stay the same is deadly, nothing's going to stay the same. To look retroactively at the stories of the past and say, well, how foolish of them not to understand what our world was going to be like, we did our best to understand what your world was going to be like, and we didn't always get it right. Nobody got it completely right. The writers of today are not going to get it right in the eyes of readers of 2055, when we will have undergone who knows what transformations of society that will make today's attitudes outmoded.
1: In in the last few decades, I mean, since you since you originally published this book in 1987, have you observed any... Or, or learned any lessons about science fiction, additional ones in in these last thirty years or so, that that you might want to share.
0: Well, I'm an old dog, and I don't even ask that I learn new tricks. I learned my tricks, and uh, they're my tricks. But uh, no, I'm I'm not trying to to keep up with the uh, the present day society, uh, let alone to forecast it anymore. Uh, I've been writing for 60 years. It's time for somebody else to do the heavy lifting.
1: Do you have any favorite authors who've emerged you know, in the last 10 or 20 years?
0: Uh, I'd rather not pick out names, no. Uh, there are some very gifted younger writers. and By younger writers, I'm practically 80 from my point of view. A younger writer is somebody 45 or 50. Uh, there are some very good ones. Uh, but if I name three, then the fourth one is going to be upset, so I'll no, stay out of that question.
1: Okay. Well, so let me ask you a, a different question. You worked with Isaac Asimov on the the novel length version of his short story Nightfall. The novel length version was published in nineteen ninety. And I was curious what that was like working with him on that very famous short story, which was originally published in nineteen forty one. And you know, at one point in the sixties, was recognized. Received an award for being the, the best science fiction short story. I think it was written prior to, uh, 1965.
0: Yes, it, uh, it, it, it landed in a book called the Science Fiction Hall of Fame that I edited. Uh, I did one volume and Ben Bova did the other and, uh, it, it is always considered one of the great classics. Well, I, I, Isaac and I were good friends, but he was 15 years older and so, I recapitulated his career uh, half a generation after him. And at the beginning, I was the goggle-eyed young reader, and he was the great writer. He had been the goggle-eyed young reader uh, when I was just teething. Nightfall was one of the first science fiction stories I read when I was 12, I think, and completely blew me away. So when... uh, Fifty-odd years later, Isaac said, my publisher wants me to do novels, but I want to do something else. Maybe you can help me out, and let's work together on some novels while I write the the, the book I I want to write, which is a nonfiction book. And I found myself writing the novel version of uh, Nightfall. Imagine what my 12-year-old self was thinking, because the 12-year-old self is still inside here with me. Uh, when I wrote the story, when I expanded it from his original, he and I discussed certain aspects of the original story. He was only 21 when he wrote it, and though it's a great story, it has certain flaws. And I, from the point of view not of a 12-year-old reader but of a very experienced uh, old professional, said to Isaac, well, what about this point and that point and that point? And we worked out little changes for those points. Then I had to follow the great, spectacular situation that that story is built around, so I couldn't take it off in any directions of my own, except for the third section of the book, which entirely takes place after his original version has ended. And there I had my own directions to go, and I went in them. So it was an interesting collaboration, a wonderful experience. Uh, I had a much stranger experience, I did three books with Isaac, uh, Nightfall, The Ugly Little Boy, and the, uh, the Bicentennial Man, which became that Robin Williams movie. Right. And The Bicentennial Man is a story about a robot who wants to be human. And one of the things that human beings do that robots don't is die. Isaac himself was dying at the time I wrote the book which meant that I had to write the book all by myself. It wasn't really a collaboration, it was just an expansion of his story. And I would discuss it with him from time to time, but I felt very strange about discussing the nature of death, the emotions that are involved in dying, with a man who I knew and he knew was dying at the time. One of the strangest experiences I've had as a writer. But we had defined the story by what he wrote originally, and I followed through with it. He never read. He didn't live long enough to read my final version.
1: Wow. Well, that's something.
0: And that's another aspect uh, of Science Fiction 101, that like Isaac, like Fred Cole, like Ray Bradbury, like Arthur Clarke, I began as a young reader, a barely adolescent reader of science fiction, and grew up. become one of the important writers of science fiction. So I traversed the whole career arc as they did. Bradbury, great figure that he became, could still remember being 19 years old and selling newspapers on the streets of Los Angeles and hoping to be a writer someday. So uh, as I find myself becoming Isaac Asimov toward the end of his life, uh, I could not but remember what it had been like. Be reading Isaac Asimov when I was a kid, just as he could never forget reading, say, E.E. E. Smith, the name, of a now forgotten writer of the past, when he was a kid. It's, a, it's an endless cycle, this this writing, and Science Fiction 101 is aimed for the people who, like Isaac, like me, like Ray Bradbury, were beginners once. I talk about that in, in my introduction, how I desperately wanted. To learn the secret of writing something that somebody would want to publish and how I found the secret the same way they did. And I talk about what that secret is, but I won't give that away here.
1: I hope I'm not giving it away if I say that um, one thing that I found quite encouraging myself as a as a writer was where you say in your introduction, really, that you recognized, you, bec- you came to recognize that hard work rather than superior genetic endowment is the basic component of most writers' success, which uh, speaks hopefully to those who are willing to make the effort, as you clearly have done. <laughs>
0: There was uh, an episode about fifteen years ago uh, at the headquarters of the science fiction trade journal *Locus*, and I, which is published near where I live in California. And the editor of *Locus* at that time was at the dinner table with me, and she said she had ambitions to be a writer herself. And how did? I think she could best go about it. And I said, Jenny, take a look at my book, Science Fiction 101. There's a story in that book called Fondly Fahrenheit by Alfred Bester. There's another one called Scanners Live in Vain by Cordwainer Smith. Read just those two stories and then write one just as good as they are, and that's how you'll launch your career. <laughs> that
1: Sounds easy. Yes, it certainly sounds easy.
0: Yeah. But uh, as for genetic predisposition to being a a successful science fiction writer, no, I don't think there's much to that, except that some people are better with verbal skills than others. I was able to read when I was three and a half, and I wrote little stories when I was seven. That has to be built in in some fashion. And if that isn't built in, well, you're not going to go anywhere as a writer. But assuming that you have... A certain amount of, of verbal ability, hard work, concentration, perseverance, drive, those things can can make up for any inherent lack. There is no you, you aren't born to be a writer, but you are born to use words, and some do it better than others. Where there is genetic uh, requirements, uh, I talk about this in my introduction, athletics, for example, No matter how hard I tried, I could never hit a baseball out of Yankee Stadium. I just don't have the physical strength for it. Right. And so I gave up the idea of being a baseball star very young. But I knew that I I had enough raw material to be a writer, and that if I focused myself on developing that raw material, I would get there. And I did.
1: Are you still continuing to write? Can we expect any more books from you?
0: I don't think you'll, you'll get to see anything major from me. Uh, I've written so much over the last 60-odd years. I don't feel the urge. I don't wake up in the morning saying, "Wow, well, I'm going to write a great new novel and I'll start right today. No, that, that's that gone. What I do now, uh, I write the occasional essay, the introduction to somebody else's book. I'm collecting a lot of my earlier work and putting it into new editions. and once in a, a Purple Moon, an idea will come to me that I just don't want to resist, and I write it down and publish it. But that, that's short story. I don't have the stamina anymore to write novels. That's hard work. It really is a, a physical act as well as an uh, intellectual one. So don't, don't look for a new novel from me. But there, but there are plenty of old ones that people can read. It keeps them busy for decades. Excellent,
1: excellent. Well, that's a fine note I think to conclude the interview on. It's been a real pleasure
0: talking with you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Robin. I'm glad we finally triumphed over all the technical uh, interference that was keeping us from having this conversation.
1: Right. First, it was just a regular landline on your end, and then it was my uh, my Skype and my
0: internet. So. Oh, well, there we are. We linked two different centuries that way.
1: That's right, that's right. Well, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it, and good luck with, with your continuing to edit, edit your work and, and getting new editions out of your work. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with Robert Silverberg, the Hugo and Nebula Award-winning author of books like Lord Valentine's Castle and Tales of Majipur. Today we were speaking with him about Science Fiction 101, Exploring the Craft of Science Fiction. An upcoming podcast we'll be speaking with the authors of a new collection of science fiction short stories, Hieroglyph Stories and Visions for a Better Future. Thanks so much for listening.